0: Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. If you don't know me, my name is Heather Taves, and I'm on the leadership team and the teaching team here at Church 214. And it's an honor to be up here with you today to, to teach and to declare God's word. It's one of my favorite things to do. So by a show of hands, or you can be vocal, I like vocal people. How many of you watched the presidential debate? And yes, we're going there. How many of you watched it on Tuesday night? Okay. Who felt a little frustrated? Okay. Beat up? Maybe even a little angry? Yeah. I think most people who watched it for one reason or another had some of those feelings and you know i absolutely love a good debate i love it my brother's laughing i love one where your values and your stances are clearly stated and communicated with passion i have a lot of experience with this because i grew up with six younger brothers and sisters and we could debate anything last night we had a siblings night and we were debating what was it what were we debating oh which uh, clear soda was better. And it was like passionate debate. The, the people who married into our family sometimes just sit and look at us like, you people are out of your minds. Some of them join in. <laughs> One of them joins in. <laughs> but, you know, debating is actually a lost art in our culture. You know, we've gotten to this place where instead of healthy and productive debate, we shout at each other and we demean each other and we tear down the people that we disagree with or we post and we comment thinking that that's maybe not quite as bad as doing it to their face. It's actually worse. It's cowardly. And so we've become, the debate has become more of a verbal beating than a debate. And on Tuesday night, after watching the debate, I really felt like I needed to go watch a Hallmark movie just to hear some nice things. (laughs) Not actually. Which brings me to today's message and our new series called Tell Us Nice Things. I like to hear nice things. You like to hear nice things, right? Here's a couple of my favorite nice things. Hey babe, there's hot coffee made for you downstairs. Yes. Um, Here's another one. Mom, I cleaned my room. Yes. I like to hear that. Here's another one. This happened this week. Hey, would you like to come over for dinner tonight? Such a nice thing to hear, especially when you have no groceries in your house. This might be my all-time favorite nice thing to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now landing on the beautiful island of Maui, Hawaii. Please enjoy your five-week vacation on this beautiful island where you do not have to self-quarantine for 14 days or provide a negative COVID test first. Yeah, right? Take me to Hawaii. We love to hear nice things, right? But what about when the things aren't so nice? What about when the conversations aren't so fun to have? Like when someone has to tell you that your kid was bullying someone else. Not a nice, it wasn't you, Bennett. (laughs) Just an example. But it's not a nice thing to hear, right? It doesn't make us feel good inside. What about when a friend says, hey, you know that thing that you said to me? That really hurt me, and I felt betrayed by that. Does that feel nice? No. We don't like to not hear nice things we would way rather always hear nice things. You know, it's no wonder that Instagram accounts that have the biggest followings are the perfectly curated ones where everything has the same filter and everything looks beautiful and they say nice things all the time, right? We like pretty and nice things and there is nothing wrong with pretty and nice things unless it's keeping us from facing reality and unless it's keeping us Burying our heads in the sand and not facing the truth of what's really happening. There is nothing wrong with nice unless it keeps us from speaking and declaring truth. There is nothing wrong with nice unless it keeps us from being obedient to who God has made us to be. You know, there is this narrative that has seeped into Christianity and seeped into churches that we as Christians should just be nice. We should just keep the peace. And both of those things are very true. We should be nice, and we should keep the peace. We should be the nicest people on the planet, and we should bring the peace because we know the prince of peace into every situation that we come into. The problem is that this has turned into passivity. We have a whole lot of Christians that are passive and are completely fine with it. I believe this idea comes from a false theology. It comes from many different places, but it comes from a false theology that comes straight from the father of lies, the devil. It comes in part from false teachings in the church over the last many, many, many years that that uses a scripture like Matthew 5, 5, where it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, but they twist it. And instead of teaching what meek actually means in context, they, they twist it like Satan did with Eve in the garden when he said, God didn't really say that. You can actually eat that fruit or they twist it like the devil did with Jesus in the wilderness when he said, turn those stones into bread. And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. And they take one scripture and they twist it and say, we as Christians should just be meek and keep the peace. I also believe it comes from this demonic, very demonic narrative from chauvinists and from sexists that exist in our country, that still exist in many countries all over the world in a massive way, that tell us that women should be silent, be passive, don't speak up, don't lead. And I'm not just talking about in the church. I'm talking about in your marriages, in your families, in, in the schools, in your communities. It also comes through liberal women's movements, in the form of devaluing and feminizing our men. Where they say men should, should not be authorities. Men should not be leaders. Men should take a step back. It comes through insecurity that we all have at times in using our own voices. It comes through fear of man and people pleasing. It comes through us feeling insignificant so we step back and we stay silent. And I don't think anyone is immune from this lie that the devil has propagated in one way or another. And since we're on this topic today, I should probably tell you that I am not here today to tell you nice things. (laughs) Not that any of you are surprised by that. But I am here to tell you good things. I'm here to tell you true things, and I believe it's a truth that we all, myself included, desperately need more now than we ever have before. You see, the devil right now is out to silence our voices. There is an attack on truth right now, unlike anything we've ever seen in our lifetime. There is an attack on the gospel of Jesus being spread and being proclaimed. There is an attack on those who follow Jesus, and there is an attack on our voices like we've never seen in our lifetime. And this is our time to be bold, church. This is our time to be confident in who God has created us to be. This, right now, is our Gideon moment. This is our Deborah moment. This is our Joshua moment and our Peter moment, and it is not a time to be passive. Being passive means that you abstain from resistance, and you yield to external influences. Think about how much of that is happening right now. Think about the times it's happened in your life just this week, abstaining from resistance, and yielding to external influences. Instead of confronting evil, I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about the demonic control and the demonic spirits that are over people. Many are hiding from it and giving in to the very plan that the devil really hoped that you would sell out to. I want to be very clear. I don't want anyone to leave here today and say, Heather told us to be mean. Let's be very clear. Being passive, not being passive, does not mean that we are mean. Not being passive does not mean that we don't love. Not being passive does not mean that we aren't empathetic. Not being passive means we don't stay silent when the truth of the gospel is the only thing that will set people free. The only thing. Not being passive means we open the doors of our churches. Not being passive means we go back into the schools to meet with students, to take the love and the gospel of Jesus to those students who are hopeless and lost and scared right now. And our very own Ryan Anderson and his team are doing that and started doing that just this last week. Not being passive means that we speak up. For the standards the Bible, not man, the Bible has set for us, even if it means people don't like us. Not being passive means that we start showing our kids what a God-honoring marriage looks like. Listen to me, church. There is an attack like never before on marriages. And I feel Like if you're willing to go out and fight for an issue, whether it be political or moral or an injustice, and you are not willing to fight for your marriage, you have your priorities out of order. Not being passive means we publicly, publicly stand up for what we believe in. Not privately, not hiding, not holding back. Not being passive means, this one's going to hurt, we stop coddling our kids and giving them their own way all the time. We stop making our children our idols, which is ruining them and it's ruining us. Not being passive means that we teach our kids that there are consequences for their sin and we follow through with discipline. Passive parenting is ruining our children. Not being passive means that we bring back the conversation that sex outside of marriage is sin, and it goes directly against God's plan for us, and that there are lifelong—listen to me, students—lifelong consequences. God can redeem, God can heal, God will forgive you, but there are lifelong consequences for choosing sex outside of marriage. Not being passive means that we start to speak up and do something about the 62 million babies that have been murdered on our watch. 62 million people that should be living and breathing and walking on our earth right now that would be about seven years older than me and younger. On our watch, that is child sacrifice. And we cannot turn a blind eye and say, maybe if we pretend it's not happening, it will go away. Not being passive means we don't turn away from suicide rates that right now are shooting through the roof in our young people. Because when they most needed help, they were isolated. Homes were closed. Churches were closed. They had no one to turn to. Not being passive means that we pay attention to this in our young people. When someone comes up to you and they say, you know, I've thought about taking my own life. I've been cutting. I've been hurting myself. I have these thoughts at night when I'm alone. We give them safe places to feel loved, to feel heard, and we continually point them back to the truth of Jesus. Not being passive means we gently but truthfully remind people what's at stake if they continue to walk the opposite way of Jesus. So what is at stake? We become passive about that too. Hell is not a nice thing to talk about. But what's at stake is an eternity without God. You think you're lonely here. You think you're isolated here. And depressed here. An eternity without God in hell is that times a billion. Because you are not only without people, you are without the God who created you. So if you've been lonely here on earth, imagine an eternity of the most intense loneliness you can possibly face, along with torment and a lake of fire and so many other things but we've stopped talking about it because it doesn't make people feel good. We stopped talking about the consequence of walking away from Jesus. See, we have this incredible gift that not only changes people's lives here and today, but changes their eternities forever. And we have remained passive on speaking out the truth because we might lose some followers. Because we might lose some friends. We might even lose some family members. And that's exactly what the devil is hoping for. It's exactly what he's counting on, is you staying silent so that he can do his work without you interfering. And you know, the devil's plan was set in long before you and I were here. But Jesus, Jesus is not passive, He is loving, and he is kind, and he is gentle, and he is good, but he is not passive. And if you have been taught that, you have been lied to. See, I don't think that if we were called to be passive, that the spiritual weapons that we've been told to put on would have been compared to armor, Listen to this in Ephesians, Ephesians 6. Now, my beloved ones, I have saved these most important truths for last. Be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. That doesn't sound passive to me put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against, fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Your hand to hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. Those principalities, that power of darkness operating just above our atmosphere to come down to earth to disrupt why we've been placed here. They are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must all wear the armor that God provides so you are protected as you confront the slanderer, the devil, the liar, for you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. Yeah. Yeah. So the thoughts for this series came one day when I was reading one of my absolute favorite books in the Bible, the book of Isaiah, and I jokingly told Chris, I am going to teach the entire book of Isaiah on Sunday morning, and he looked at me like, what? Which is a complete joke because that would be a year-long series, but I'm going to paraphrase his life for us today, and I'm going to use his his book, his writings as our main text to show you what a profound example he set um, of this exact thing that I'm talking about and how relevant it is to us right now. See, I love Isaiah because he was both poetic. His writings have been compared to Shakespeare's writings. If you go and you read the book of Isaiah, you'll see what that means. They're beautiful poetry of these words that God's given him. But he was also straightforward and truthful. He did not hold back. He was both poetic and straightforward and truthful. In fact, Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. For a long time, I kind of pictured Isaiah, actually I think I pictured all of the prophets, is kind of like this outcaster, loner type. You know, they're just like roaming around, declaring these prophetic revelations to whoever might be listening come on you did too but it's actually completely opposite isaiah was completely opposite of that he was of royal descent he had royal blood throwing flowing through him his grandfather was king joash of israel and his uncle was king uzziah who he served under So his people were the leaders. His people were the kings who were leading the nation of Israel. God called him through visions that he was given. This is part of the calling when when he first saw and heard the Lord speak to him. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, which was his uncle, I clearly saw the Lord. Angels were with him. And the angels called out one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, commander of angels' armies. The whole earth is filled with your glory. The thunderous voice of the fiery angels caused the foundations of the thresholds to tremble as the cloud of glory filled the temple. Then I, Isaiah, stammered, and I said, Woe is me. I'm destroyed. I'm doomed as a sinful man. For my words are tainted, and I live among people who talk the same way. King Yahweh, commander of angels' armies, my eyes have gazed upon him. So he hears and he sees the Lord, and he says, I'm doomed. Then I, Isaiah, heard the Lord saying, whom should I send to my people? Who will go represent us? And Isaiah spoke up and said, I'll do it. Send me. See, Isaiah served God under the reign of four kings of Israel. And he was called the Messianic prophet because he was continually prophesying about the coming Messiah, which was Jesus. He had his heart and his mind set on Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. There was no way he could have known about this except for the Lord God himself telling and speaking to Isaiah, showing him dreams, giving him visions about what was to come. It was seven to 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem that Isaiah was prophesying about him. Isaiah saw all these visions, and he wrote down the things that were to come about Jesus coming to earth, going to the cross, taking the sacrifice for us, and rising again. And Isaiah 53, it's an entire chapter devoted to Jesus coming down to earth. Remember, 700 years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah was prophesying this. Isaiah 53 says this, it was because of our rebellious deeds that he was pierced. He's speaking about Jesus. He had no idea Jesus would be nailed to a cross, pierced through the hands and the feet and the side. Because of our sins, he was crushed. He endured the punishment that made us completely whole. And in his wounding, through Jesus' wounding, you have healing. He also had, not only did he have visions and and words about Jesus coming to earth and redeeming us, he also had visions of things that would happen in their current time. Things that would come to pass. um, uh, Nations that would conquer them. um, And it happened. He saw his words come true. He also had visions of things that are still to come. Things that haven't happened yet. Yet. There are prophecies in the book of Isaiah that have not yet been fulfilled because they are still to come. He had all of these prophecies of the new heaven and the new earth. Listen to this in Isaiah 65. Look, I am creating entirely new heavens and a new earth. They will be so wonderful that no one will even think about the old ones anymore. We will forget all about 2020. And as you wait for the reality of what I am creating, be filled with joy and unending gladness. Look, I am ready to create Jerusalem as a sheer source of sheer joy and her people an absolute delight. I will rejoice in this new Jerusalem and find great delight in my people. You will no longer hear the sound of weeping or cries of distress. No baby will die in infancy there, and everyone will live out their full lifespan. Church, that is what we have to look forward to. That is why we cannot stay passive. That is why we run to the hurting and the lonely and the desperate and the dying, and we share the gospel of Jesus with them because of that. And Isaiah saw that. He knew that that's what was coming. He had dreams, and he had visions, and he lived his life with the hope of eternity in mind. Isaiah 26.3 says this, Perfect, absolute peace surrounds those whose imaginations are consumed with you. Whose imaginations are consumed with Jesus. Perfect peace. Would anybody like a even just a little bit of that right now, perfect peace, because they confidently trust in you. See, Isaiah was consumed with the hope of Jesus. And it wasn't because he had this easy-peasy life. It wasn't because everything was perfect in his world. His life was actually full of, tor- of tor- turmoil. His entire life was spent in a warlike atmosphere, See, the country of Israel was one nation, and during his lifetime, they went to civil war, and they became two nations. They fought against each other, they became the nation of Israel, and they became the nation of Judah. Two sides. We can relate to that a little bit, right? Imagine that feeling of seeing your nation, the one you know that God has redeemed and set free and rescued time and time and time again, again just going, we're done. No no more of this peace stuff. We're, We're separating. So that was happening. And also, his entire lifetime was spent under the threat of being attacked by the Assyrian king. There was this Assyrian king that just wanted to take out the nation of Israel, of Judah. And so his whole life was spent thinking there was going to be an attack from this enemy nation. He knew what hard times were. He knew what turmoil was. And yet, despite that, he kept his eyes fixed on the one who had called him. He saw the glory of the Lord all around him. He saw the hope of eternity. Even though his nation was in ruins. Even though it was so divided, it seemed like there was no hope. But as Isaiah was so full of hope of Jesus, he was not passive. You know, Isaiah speaks some of the boldest prophecies to the kings, to the people around him. And you know who those people were? They were his friends and they were his family members. They were his community. He was actually hated. He was hated because of the words that he spoke. These are some of the things that he called out. And I want you to keep in mind, he's not speaking these out to some group of strangers or just posting them online. He's speaking these to his family, to the people that he lived with and worked with and ate with and partied with. Isaiah 2, 8 and 9. He's calling out their idolatry. Worthless idols are everywhere. They worship the work of their own hands, what their fingers have made. The people bow low before the no gods, and the leaders lie down flat before them in worship. So do not spare them. Sound familiar? Have we seen anything like that recently? People laying prostrate in front of other people, worshiping them instead of the truth? He prophesied what God was about to allow to happen to them when their nation was taken over by evil enemies. It would be like, you know, someone in here prophesying saying, hey, your nation is about to get destroyed by this country. They're coming. They're going to attack you. This is what's going to happen. Not a nice thing to hear. Isaiah 3, behold, Yahweh, the sovereign one, the commander of angels' armies, is about to cut off from Jerusalem and Judah every source of their support and security, including all food, supplies, and water. Can you see why maybe they hated him? He will remove their heroes and soldiers, prophets and judges, their fortune tellers and statesmen, their respected military leaders, pillars of the community, their counselors, their skilled craftsmen, and those professional charmers, influencers. I will make inexperienced youth their rulers, and children will govern them. Everyone will take advantage of everyone else, and neighbor will struggle against neighbor. The youth will not respect their elders, and the dishonorable will sneer at those worthy of honor. Would you have liked to have given that message? No. He also spoke very bold proclamations from the Lord, very intimately to his own people, to the people closest to him, to his friends and family. Isaiah 29, this is what the Lord says about these people. They come near me with hollow words, and they honor me superficially with their lips, all the while their hearts run far away from me. Their worship is nothing more than man-made rules. So therefore, I will again jolt this people awake with astonishing wonders upon wonders. And the wisdom of their wise ones will fail, and the intelligent know-it-alls will have no explanations. God is about to wake you up. God is about to wake up his people with his wonders. When people go, how could that have happened? And you say, only God could have made that happen. So these are the kind of nice things that Isaiah was telling all the people around him. So how did the people respond to this? Were they like, oh, Isaiah, buddy, buddy? Come on over for dinner. You're such a good pal. No. This is how they responded Isaiah 30. Isaiah is explaining the people's response in his writing right here. Now go and write down these words, write them in a book. They will stand until the end of time as a witness that these people are stubborn rebels who refuse to pay attention to the Lord's instructions. They tell the seers, stop seeing visions. They tell the prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. Forget all this gloom. Get off your narrow path. Stop telling us about the Holy One of Israel. Does this sound familiar? Don't pray in school. Don't talk to us about Jesus. Be inclusive. It's okay to murder 62 million babies. It's your body. It's your right. Whatever makes you feel good is just fine. Morals are not absolute. You can love and sleep with whomever makes you happy. Sure, a man can marry a man, and a woman can marry a woman. If it's love, it's a good thing. Tell us nice things. Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us lies. And stop telling us about the Holy One of Israel. The world was trying to silence the voice of the Lord, spoken through the prophet Isaiah, and it is no different today. The world is trying to silence the voice of you and me because because we carry the truth that silences the enemy. See, Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. They, They didn't even realize it. They had no clue what he was talking about. He was prophesying of Jesus. But he was also prophesying things that didn't sound nice. And the world wanted to shut him up. And they want to shut us up today. But there is hope. They will not. They will not shut us up. They will not tell us. Just tell us nice things. Tell us lies. They might try to tell us that, but we won't listen. One of Isaiah's greatest accomplishments and one of the most miraculous stories in the Bible that I bet many of you have never even heard comes at the very end of Isaiah's life. Keep in mind, he's lived his whole life obeying God, living a life in in turmoil in his nation and struggling and people hating him. And At the very end of his life, this crazy awesome thing happens. So the Assyrian army has finally come, and they are conquering the nation of Judah. They've threatened for all of these years, and all of a sudden, the Assyrian king is just going on a rampage, destroying all of these cities. In fact, he had conquered 46 walled and fortified cities in a short time span. And he's coming to the capital city of Jerusalem, where the king of Judah, Hezekiah, is trapped in the city. He's he's trapped in the city because he can't go out anywhere else because they'll capture him and probably kill him. And so as the Assyrian army approaches the city, Isaiah is is calling out to God and saying, what do we do? And the Lord intervenes and saves the city of Jerusalem. So here's what happens. The army is just outside the city, Isaiah 37. That night, as the army is camped outside the city, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpse everywhere. Can you imagine? It would be horrifying then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. And Jerusalem was rescued. But as you read the first part of the story, which I don't have time for today, you would see that Isaiah was intimately involved in this rescue. He did three, three things happened. Three things happened for this, for this miraculous divine intervention of the Lord. Number one, he prayed. He met with God upon hearing about this impending doom of their city. And he asked the Lord for his divine help. Church, we have to be praying and listening like we have never prayed before. We have to be calling out to the Lord for divine intervention. For divine intervention in our families, in our marriages, in our country, For revival. Then the second thing that he did is he went to King Hezekiah. He gave him insight. He told him what the Lord had said. He told him like, hey, if you don't ask the Lord for his help, we will be destroyed. And because of his obedience, King Hezekiah also got down on his knees and began to pray. He began to pray that God would intervene. And the third thing that happened was that the Lord intervened in a miraculous way. And all they did was pray, trust God, act, and pray again. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to do in these days. We have to pray and ask the Lord for divine intervention. We have to speak up boldly to our leaders, to our followers, to our friends and families, and to strangers. And we have to watch the Lord deliver us from our enemies. We are not called to live a passive lifestyle. This is not a sit back and hope for the best kind of time that we live in. This is a fully engaged in the world we live in kind of life even if it costs us our reputations. See, the world desperately needs us as Christ followers to be graciously aggressive in the way that we speak truth and in the way that we live our lives. And You probably might be in here, you might be in here, and you, you might hear me say aggressive, and you'd be like, ooh, I, no, I don't, I don't think so. But that would be a false assumption of what I'm actually saying. You know, when our daughter goes out to play soccer, we tell her, Jewels, be aggressive, go for the ball. Don't back away from it, go towards it. And that's my point. We go for the ball. We run towards the hurting and the lonely and the desperate with the truth. And we love them so aggressively that they can't help but turn towards you to say, What is it that's, a, what about you is different that I don't have? My son, when he plays soccer, he's um, it's, it's a just a fun league, not super competitive, which drives me mad, but <laughs> at least they're playing. And they have a three-goal limit. So after you score three goals as one player, then the coach is like, Bennett, stop scoring. I saw him do it three times yesterday. Bennett, knock it off. You know, and Bennett... Kicked the ball he's quite large for his group <laughs> kicked the ball from past midfield. It was supposed to be a pass. The pass got missed. The goalie went between her legs and it dribbled in. <laughs> so he scored four goals. And that would like I, I was sitting there watching this going, "Yes, The problem with so many Christians is that we go, "I scored three goals. I did my duty." I said that nice thing, that calm thing. I served. I went and stood at the front door of the church. I went and did this. I did that. I took my neighbor a meal. Okay, I'm out of the game now. I've done my part. We limit what God is asking us to do because we're passive. When God says, go score as many goals as you possibly can. Go run to the hurting and the lonely and the desperate and the dying and bring them back to me. See, this is our Deborah moment and our Peter moment and our Gideon moment and our Joshua moment. But I want to be super clear about something. All of those people, they had very different callings on their life. Deborah was a judge. the nation of Israel. Peter was called with 11 others to step forward and take the gospel of Jesus and start the church. Gideon and Joshua were both called as warriors, as conquerors. They were all called to different things. So we have to be very careful about people walking out their calling and speaking boldly and walking in truth and then going, I don't know about how they're doing it because it's not what I'm called to do. It's not how I would do it, so they must be wrong. We are all needed. Our gifts and our callings and how we speak boldly, how we live boldly, it's different for everyone. So please be very, very careful. If someone is walking out their calling and you're judging them because it's not how you would do it. Some people are called to serve in our government. Some people have that desire and that call on their life. Some people are called to teach in public schools. Some people are called to be in the marketplace. Some people are called to be on Wall Street. Some people are called to be a stay-at-home mom and love her kids and teach her kids and train them up, and that is just as important as that person that has the, high power, the high-paying the high job. We are all called to different things, and we have to be supportive and encourage one another instead of tearing each other down. So if you see someone posting something and you're like, ooh, I wouldn't have posted that, check your own heart. And ask the Holy Spirit why you feel that way and what it might be that you're missing out on, what you're not being obedient to. You know, Isaiah was hated by many, and in the end he was killed because of it. They think he was actually sawed in half by King Manasseh. But can you imagine his place in heaven when he gets up there and his heavenly father says, Well done, my son. You did not shy away from the words I gave you, you did not hold back and just say nice things, even though you were told to by those around you. Isaiah modeled what I believe we are supposed to be living, how we are supposed to be living in these times. And Paul reminds us of this in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is so beautiful. For you already know quite well that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly and as a complete surprise. For while some are saying, finally, we have peace and security, sudden destruction will arrive at their doorstep like labor pains, seizing a pregnant woman and with no chance of escape. But you, beloved brothers and sisters, are not living in the dark, allowing that day to creep up on you like a thief coming to steal, for you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the the night nor to the darkness. This is why we must not fall asleep as the rest do, but keep wide awake and clear-headed, For those who are asleep, sleep the night away, and drunkards get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must stay alert and clear-headed by placing the breastplate of faith and love over our hearts and a helmet of the hope of salvation over our thoughts. For God has not destined us to experience wrath but to possess salvation through our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One. Because of this, encourage the hearts of your fellow believers and support one another, just as you have already been doing. We appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, to instruct those who are not in their place of battle. Be skilled at gently encouraging those who feel themselves inadequate. Be faithful to stand your ground. Help the weak to stand again. Be quick to demonstrate patience with everyone. Resist revenge and make sure that no one pays back evil in place of evil. But always pursue doing what is beautiful to one another, to each other as fellow Christ followers and to all unbelievers. I love this part so much. Let joy be your continual feast. Make your life a prayer. And in the midst of everything, be always giving thanks for this is God's perfect plan for you in Christ Jesus. Church, we are not called to be passive. We are not called to sit back and wait it out. I saw a video on Instagram yesterday of a worship uh, event that was being held in Texas. There were thousands of people there. Our very own Andrew and Christy Cohen were at this event. As they were sharing the gospel of Jesus, there were hundreds and hundreds of people running as fast as they could through a crowd of people to get to their front because they wanted to give their lives to Jesus. They were desperate for Jesus. And I text Andrew and I said, Andrew, what was that like? And he said, it was was incredible. There were hundreds of people running towards Jesus. That is what we get to experience if we get off the sidelines, if we stop being passive, if we stop stop being worried about offending people with the truth that we have to share. Find out what God is asking you to say and then say it. Find out what God is asking you to do and do it. If you need help, we can help you with that. We don't have all the answers, but we can pray with you and we can ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Don't be passive. Be loving and bold. Be truthful and compassionate. Be honest and understanding because your voice, your voice is needed right now in your community more than it's ever been needed before. And I believe we are about to come into a time where we see people running to find Jesus. Would you stand on your feet and pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much that you are here with us today. I thank you that you are calling us out. You are calling out boldness in us. You are calling out who you actually created us to be, Lord Jesus. When you created us on the day of creation and you breathed your breath into us. You breathe the spirit of God into us. You did not create us to stay silent, to stay on the sidelines. You created us to be the light of the world. You created us to be a city set on a hill that is not hidden. You created us to be the salt that flavors everything we touch and everything we participate in. You created us, Jesus, to be a light that isn't hidden under a bushel that isn't, isn't squashed, that isn't told, stop telling us, stop telling us about the Holy One of Israel. Tell us nice things, tell us lies. No, we were created to speak of your goodness, to praise you, to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory and let me show you the glory of God. That's who we were created to be. And so if there's anyone in here right now that is feeling something rise up in you. You might be feeling a couple things. You might be feeling this passion of yes. Just like Isaiah said when he said, Lord, I'm here, Send, do it, I'll do it, send me. Maybe that's you and you're feeling that rise up in you. I just want you to raise your hand right now. No one's looking around, just raise your hand to the Lord. It's it's him that matters. It's him that sees you and you say, I want to be that voice, God. I want to be used by you, even if it means I lose my reputation, even if it means I'm hated. And maybe some of you are feeling the the sting of conviction, of of like, you know, and it hurts a little bit. It doesn't feel good to be convicted. The discipline of the Lord doesn't always feel good in the moment, but afterwards is so sweet, it's so beautiful, and you get to be obedient and walk that out. So if that's you right now, and you're like, I have been on the sidelines, I have been a voice that has stayed silent, I want you to raise your hand, and I want you to raise it for the Lord, the Lord to see He sees your heart already, but as an outward example, as an outward expression of saying, God, I repent of this. I repent of my judginess. When I look at other people being bold and I say, well, what do they think they're doing? I repent of that, God. I repent of staying on the sidelines. I repent of being bold, but not doing it in love. I repent of being passive. And I make a declaration today that from this day forward, I will be the one running towards the hurting, towards the lost, towards the dying. I will make a difference in my school. I will make a difference on my sports team. I will make a difference in my neighborhood. I will make a difference in my family. I will be the one that brings the truth, the truth of Jesus, to those around me. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence. We love you, we worship you, and we just declare that you are good, you are God, and we are so grateful that you have chosen us. In Jesus' name, amen.